Well, uh, when I was in college, I went to college at Oklahoma State University, and uh, one of my kind of dream jobs to have during the summers uh, was to be a camp counselor. Uh, I just kind of experience I wanted to have, and so the summer after my sophomore year at college, I signed up to work as a camp counselor at a camp called Kanakuk. Uh, if anybody's heard of Kanakuk, we had a few at the first service. We've got none at this service. Okay. Oh, one. There you go. Come on. Uh, well, I got signed up to work as a counselor at a Christian sports camp in Missouri called Kanakuk. And uh, I wanted to be assigned in high school camp because I wanted to have deep conversations with high schoolers. And uh, lo and behold, I get there and I get assigned to middle school camp, which is fine. Um, and I quickly realized, though, this is, this is pretty cool. I realized that, you know, high schoolers might have deeper conversations, uh, but middle schoolers just have way more fun. And uh, one of those situations was uh, after lunch, every single day of the week, uh, for kind of a 40-minute period of time, uh, all of the middle school guy counselors, along with all of the middle school boy campers, all got together, and we had what we called FUAGNUM. FUAGNUM. It was an acronym, F-U-A-G-N-E-M. It stood for Fired Up and Going Nuts Every Minute. FUAGNUM. And the purpose of FUAGNUM was to kind of combat that after lunch, kind of post-lunch, kind of drowsy, kind of like I don't want to do anything for the rest of the day kind of feeling. Campers would start losing energy. And so we instituted this thing called Fuagnum for 40 minutes where us as the guy counselors, our whole aim was to just get these middle school boys excited and energized to the best of our ability. And so we took that 40-minute period of time, and it started out with things like uh, singing songs with them and, and doing cheers and just kind of getting them excited as we could. But we quickly realized, after just a couple sessions, that if you want to get middle school boys excited and energized and riled up and ready to go, that singing cheers and chants were probably not the best thing to do. Instead, you could be far more effective using that 40-minute period of time to rather think of every possible conceivable borderline dangerous prank that a college counselor could do entertaining middle school boys. And we stumbled upon this solution when one of our counselors brought with him a slingshot and a bag of grapes to Fuagnum that he had found in the kitchen. And he, uh, I think his name was Jim, he was running Fuagnum. He goes over to the, the middle school boys with this slingshot and this bag of grapes. And unbeknownst to us, he said to us, he's like, hey, how many of y'all want to see me take this slingshot and just shoot Dane with a grape? And they were just like, yeah, do it. And he's just like, pop. He's like, oh. And that kind of led to this fateful day when myself and my co-counselor, Sean, we're walking down to Fuagnum, leading all of the middle school boys down there. And we all get down there. And, and as we get down there, Jim noticed that there was, a, uh, there was a burned fire pit, a whole bunch of logs that had kind of been burned. And on top of this fire pit was this, this big bamboo tiki torch. You guys know what I'm talking about? Those long tiki torches look like bamboo, just sitting on top of this fire pit, kind of blackened and charred a little bit, like somebody had tried to burn it, but just didn't really have a whole lot of success. And so Jim saw this tiki torch. He walks over. He grabs this tiki torch. He brings it over to the middle school boys and holds it up. Sean and I and the rest of the counselors just kind of standing back watching, what is Jim going to do? And uh, Jim holds up this tiki torch, and he's like, hey, who wants to see me break this tiki torch across Sean's back? 
And all the boys in the moment were just like, yeah, that would be awesome. And Sean over here is just like, I don't know if that's such a good idea. Like there was just this look of just sheer hesitation, rightfully so, on Sean's face. But we and the other counselors got with Sean, we're just like, dude, like, don't worry, man. Like, it's blackened, it's charred, it was on a fire last night. Like, it'll surely break, you got nothing to worry about. And so we talked Sean into it. Sean comes over, uh, presents his shirtless back, because part of Foagnum is guys, we didn't allow shirts because it felt made us feel more manly, okay? Well, Sean presents his shirtless back to these middle schoolers, and Jim just has that tiki torch, and he's just counting down three, two, one, and he just wails that thing across Sean's back. And in that moment, two things happened. One, the middle school boys just erupted with energy, right? Like they loved it. Two, the tiki torch did not break and instead just left this massive bloody streak across Sean's back as his knees crippled and he fell to the ground and was then taken off to the nurse's office. And he was fine. (laughs) And we succeeded in our goal for Fruagnum. Like, it was a win-win. Now, here's the thing. Why, Why do I share that story with you all today? I share that story with you all for for this reason. As Ben said, today we are talking about why should a Christian commit to a local church? Why should a Christian commit in membership to a local church? And a lot of times when we think about committing in membership to a local church, our immediate response, our natural response is just one of hesitation, that just like Sean, his immediate response to that tiki torch was just this look of just hesitation, like, I'm not so sure about this. Like, I, I don't know if that's a good idea. Like, I have doubts. Like, I don't know if it's going to work out for my well-being stepping into this position. Likewise, I think whenever we think about church membership and stepping into church membership, committing to a local church, we become hesitant as well. And our natural response is not necessarily one of just jumping in with joy, but rather reserved hesitation. And the thing is, like, we don't don't have hesitation for no reason. Like, we have reasons for why we're hesitant to step into that commitment. Just like Sean had reasons for being hesitant, right? Like, he was thinking to himself, like, I don't think this is going to end anywhere I want to be. I can just see pain and hurt in my future as a result of stepping into this. There was reasons why Sean was hesitant to step into this. Just like there's reasons that we tend to become hesitant when thinking about, when talking about committing to the local church. And what I want to do here is I want to talk real quick, what is that reason? Why is it that we tend to become hesitant about stepping into membership at a local church? And as I was thinking through this and preparing this uh, message, I was thinking to myself, you know, I think the reason we oftentimes, more often than not, tend to get hesitant when thinking about committing in membership to a local church is because we tend to put the idea of the local church into one of two boxes, that we tend to put the idea of the local church into one of two boxes. And the first box that I think that we tend to put the idea of the local church into is this box right here, 
of other clubs and social organizations that we seek to be a part of. Other clubs and social organizations that we seek to be a part of. Whether it's a soccer league for my kid or whether it's a Boy Scout or Girl Scout troop, whatever it is, I think we tend to become hesitant because we can inadvertently, not even intentionally, group membership in a local church into the same box as we group those other social organizations and groups that we think about joining. And the thing with that is that what rubs us the wrong way about that, what can rub us the wrong way about that, is that all of these other groups and organizations all have standards that you have to meet in order to actually belong to them. And so if you want your kid in a certain soccer league, they've either got to be good enough or you got to have the right amount of money, or usually both. If you want to be a part of a debate team, you got to be smart enough. You want to be a part of a football team, you got to be fast enough. You want to be a part of a country club, you got to be rich enough. All of these things have standards that we have to meet if we want to be involved in them, if we want to be a part of that group or organization. And when we think about standards, think about having to meet a standard in order to be a part of a group organization, well, that just sounds closed-minded. Like, that just sounds exclusive to us. It sounds like the opposite of grace. It sounds like the exact opposite of grace. And all of a sudden, we start thinking of times in our past when we were excluded from things because we failed to meet a standard, and that just left a bad taste in our mouth. And then we inadvertently group membership in the local church with, along with those same clubs and organizations. We stick it in that box mentally, and it can cause us to become hesitant to join. It can cause us to become hesitant to step into that commitment. But that's not the only box that I think we can tend to group the idea of the local church into. You see, the second box that I think we can tend to group the idea of the local church into is this box right here of just other personal commitments, other personal commitments. And so when I moved to Dallas from Oklahoma, I moved down to Dallas in the fall of 2012, and I joined a church in Dallas. And at this church, there was a group of 20-somethings that every second Friday of the month, they would all have a party. It was called, it came to be known as just second Friday parties. And it was just a time where all the 20-somethings got together, hung out, played games, got to know each other. And uh, I remember getting a Facebook invitation for this, this second Friday party. And as soon as I got that Facebook invitation, I saw the three RSVP options, right, on Facebook. Is you either have that yes, accept option, you have that no, decline option, and then you just have that all comfortable, just maybe option, right? And that's the option we love because we look at that maybe option and we're like, this gives me the opportunity to say kind of yes, but then if something better comes on down the road, I can say no to this and I can go do that thing. Or maybe I can say maybe to this second Friday party, but then if I get there and it's just like, like what if the party's kind of lame? Like, what if there's nobody I know there? Like, and if a better party comes on down the road before this party comes, like, I can go to that party instead? We're hesitant sometimes to make commitments, personal commitments, because we wonder, what if something better comes down the road? And I don't want to close myself off to something better. And when we inadvertently group the local church into this box— we start thinking to ourselves, I, I could step into membership here. I could commit to this local church. But like, what if it doesn't turn out the way that I want it to? 
Like, what if it ends up leading me in a place that I is just uncomfortable or I get disappointed or I get hurt or something? Like, like, what if it ends up not being as good as I hope it is or that I want it to be? And so whenever we group the idea of the local church into that box, it can cause us to become hesitant to step into any kind of membership or commitment there. And here's the thing, the problem with putting the idea of the local church into either one of these two boxes is that ultimately to think about the local church, even unintentionally, to treat the local church like we would treat other clubs and organizations, like we would treat other personal commitments that we might have, to treat the local church like that is in direct contradiction to what Jesus established the local church to be. The problem is that it directly contradicts what Jesus established the local church to be. Because here's the thing, this is point number three if you're taking notes, that when Jesus came as a baby, when he came to fulfill his ministry on the earth, he came to establish a nation on the earth, represented not by social clubs or organizations, not by just kind of fun group events, but by embassies on the earth. That when Jesus came to establish a nation on the earth, he came to establish a nation represented not by social clubs, organizations, not by personal events or parties, but by embassies. And whenever we treat inadvertently the church like these two things, we are misidentifying what the church is. We are misidentifying what the church is. The local church is meant to be an embassy to Christ's kingdom on the earth. That just like when you go into a different country where the United States has embassies in those countries, the purpose of a U.S. embassy is to advance the diplomatic mission of the United States. The purpose of a U.S. embassy is to advance the diplomatic mission of the United States, and that's what the local church is meant to be for Christ's kingdom, for Christ's nation. It is meant to be an embassy to his kingdom, not a social club organization, not just a fun event or get-together. It's meant to be an embassy. And so what I want to do real quick is I want, to, I want to back up and start in the Old Testament and kind of show the progression of how this came to be. Because if you start back in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, God was establishing Israel as a geographical people, a geographical place, and that they were meant to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, which means they were meant to be set apart from every other nation in the world, but instead in order to be representatives of God to the rest of the world. That God set Israel up to be a holy nation, set apart to himself, in order to be representatives of him to the rest of the world. That was the purpose for Israel in the Old Testament. But now you fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus steps on the scene and Jesus makes four kind of kingdom altering statements. Four kingdom altering statements. The first statement he makes is that God was firing Israel from being the sole representative of him on the earth. God was firing Israel from being the sole representative of him on the earth. Number two, the second statement he made was that now Jesus would be the representative of God on the earth. He is the image of the invisible God. When he was speaking, when he was speaking to his disciples, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
that Jesus was now going to be the representative of the Father. Number three, God was no longer establishing a geographical place, but rather he was establishing a people, a people who would be known for humility, repentance, and with childlike dependence upon him. That he wasn't establishing a geographical place anymore, but a people. And then number four, the fourth statement that Jesus makes is that God was ransoming these people by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to then join Jesus in representing God to the world. That when Jesus stepped on the scene, he makes four kingdom-altering statements. One, God was firing Israel. Two, Jesus would now be the representative of the Father. Number three, God was establishing a people for himself. And number four, these people would be ransomed to him by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to then represent him to the world along with Christ. But that brings up the natural question of if that's the kingdom of God, if that's the nation that that Christ brought, the question comes up is, how do you rule over and manage a people, part of a kingdom, that has no physical boundaries to it whatsoever? Like, how do you manage and rule over a people in a kingdom that has no physical boundaries whatsoever. And that was the question the local church was established to answer. That was the question the local church was established to answer. Because when Jesus came, he came to establish a nation on the earth represented by embassies to advance the mission of God to the nations. And that this was the question the local church established to answers. How do you manage over that kingdom? You see, you ever wondered why, if you look at the Gospels, it seems like Jesus speaks 90% about the kingdom and only like 10% about the church. But then if you jump into Paul's letters and much of the New Testament, it seems the New Testament speaks primarily 90% about the church and then just 10% about the kingdom. Now, why is that? The answer is because when Jesus came, he came to establish and bring the kingdom. And then Paul and the other writers of the New Testament were tasked with saying, hey, this is what that looks like on a day-to-day schedule, on a day-to-day basis. This is how that affects your everyday routine, how you interact with one another, how you interact with your spouses, how you interact with your neighbors, how you think about work, how you think about free time, all of these things. Because Jesus had brought the kingdom that was meant to be a representative to the nations through embassies planted on the earth. And we contend to think about it as clubs or social gatherings, but it's not that. It's not that at all. And that directly contradicts what it is that Jesus was setting up to establish. Because here's the thing, in the, in the New Testament, in the early first century, the idea of church membership was just kind of like, it was like a non-category. Like it wasn't even in there. Like you look through the New Testament, you won't find the phrase church membership anywhere. Because it was just understood that if you were a Christian in a particular city, you were a quote unquote member of that church. Like if you were a Christian in Rome, you were part of the Roman church. If you were a Christian in Ephesus, you were part of the Ephesian church. It was just understood that if you were a Christian, you were a member. 
and you fell under the leadership of the, of the pastoral leaders in that city. This is one of the reasons why if you look at Paul's missionary journeys in Acts, one of the first things you see Paul do is he goes into towns, he shares the gospel, he preaches God's word, but then he seeks to set up local leaders in that town to lead and to shepherd and to care for the church in that town. And then he would pick up and he would go to another town, he'd do it all over again. And that's what the local church is meant to be because Paul understood that part of being a Christian, part of being a Christian, was that you fell under the leadership of the individuals that he had established at that church in that city to lead those people, to care for those people. That part of being a Christian means placing yourself under the leadership, under the guidance and direction of the pastors in that church. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Here's the thing. Sometimes we hear that phrase, that that phrase like submit to your leaders, or we hear just that verb submit, whether it's to your leaders, your bosses, or whoever it might be. We hear that phrase submit, and it automatically makes us feel uncomfortable because our mind starts racing through the history of all these people throughout history who had authority, who had power, and who were supposed to use that power for the benefit, for the flourishing, for the joy, for the good of the people they were placed over to lead. But instead of using their power that way, they used their power in order to just manipulate and hurt others for their own benefit. They saw their power as a means to their own gain rather than a responsibility to be used for the good of those they were supposed to be leading. And so when we hear that idea of submit, we automatically think of all the ways in which that power has been abused in the past. But look at the text again. Look at why the author of Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For, because they are keeping watch over your souls, that these are meant to be individuals who would use the influence that God has given them, use the skills that God has given them, use the gifts that God has given them for the good, for the flourishing, for the joy of the local church, of the people that God had placed under their leadership. That's what the intent was. That's what the aim was supposed to be for these individuals. That's still the aim today. That Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.24, he said, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. I heard somebody say one time, a lot of times people, at this point, people will be like, well, like I would step into membership here. Like I would commit to this local church. But the fact of the matter is like, y'all are just kind of a bunch of hypocrites. And like, I don't want to be a part of something to where like somebody's going to say one thing and then they're going to totally do something completely different. Like, I don't want to be a part of that because all I've known is that y'all are just a bunch of hypocrites. And I heard a pastor respond to that this way one time. He said, absolutely, absolutely we are. And praise God for the fact that you are still welcome to come and be in a local church and you're not required to be perfect immediately. Like, praise God for that. 
Now, yes, you are supposed to be taking steps towards perfection continually. God says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That should always be our aim. But praise God that it isn't, it isn't required of you overnight. The local church will disappoint you. Like it will. If it hasn't already, it will. And you guys probably know that better than I do even. But Hebrews 13, 17, author of Hebrews doesn't give exceptions based on disappointment. He doesn't say, submit to your leaders and follow them unless you're disappointed with things and then you can kind of just do whatever you want to do. Like he doesn't say that. The only exception to that, that directive from God is in the New Testament that's spoken of is whenever your leader starts speaking things that are contrary to God's word. At that point, then you are no longer obligated to follow them. But just because we're disappointed and we get hurt and things like that, that's not an exception that the author of Hebrews brings up. Because here's the thing, we as pastors here know, like we know that we will be held accountable to God for how we pastor you all. We will be held accountable to God for how we pastor you all. Acts 20, 28 says, Speaking to pastoral leaders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Going back to Hebrews 13, 17, when it says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. As those who will have to give an account that I will have to, at one point, stand before God and give an account for how I have pastored your students. I will have to do that. Just like all of us will have to stand before God and give an account for how we glorified his name and everything we did and said throughout our entire life. But if we resign ourselves to never commit to a local church, never place ourselves under pastoral leadership at our local church, never commit to follow the directions of the pastors in our local church, then we are living contrary to how the Bible would call a Christian to live then we are living contrary to how the Bible would call a Christian to live, that my wife and I will be accountable to God for how well we submitted to Pastor George's leadership and the other pastors here. Like we will be accountable for that because part of being a Christian means placing yourself under the leadership and direction and authority of the pastors at the local church. But another part about being a Christian, just being a Christian, means being accountable to spurring other Christians on towards Christ-likeness. Spurring other Christians on towards Christ-likeness. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And if we never place ourselves in a position to where we are committing in membership here, saying, I commit to seek to spur on the men and women here at this church with everything that I have inside of me, seeking to do that. If we don't do that, if we don't step into that commitment, then we will just naturally only tend to, to encourage and build up and seek to stir up the believers, the brothers and sisters that we just like. The ones we get along with more than others. And we'll just kind of avoid the ones that we just don't click with or we're offended by or we don't get along with. We will just avoid them and only seek to encourage and build up the ones that we like. 
And the problem with that is that is not the biblical picture of a Christian. That's not who a Christian is called to be. In 1 John 4, verse 20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I was a college minister at SMU for a couple years before coming up here to, Dallas, up here to Plano. And I had an SMU student ask, tell me one time saying, hey man, like I, I love God. Like I want to follow him with everything inside of me. I'm just not a huge fan of the church. Like I'm just not really a huge fan of being a part of like an organized kind of religious institution. I just don't really want to be a part of that. But I love God. I want to follow him with everything. And I said to him, I was like, man, here's, here's the problem with what you said. The problem with what you said is you're referring to the church. You're referring to people, men and women, who Jesus bled and died for. That when Jesus speaks about the church, he calls them his bride. That he calls the church his bride. And for you to say, I love God, but I'm just not really, I just don't want to be a part of that. Is like you telling me, hey, Dane, like I'm cool with you, man. I think you're awesome. But bro, like I can't stand your wife. Which is like, like we're not okay. Like that's a problem. Like there's, there's an issue right now that you and I have to deal with. It doesn't work that way. But, but ultimately, we are called as believers to love, encourage, build up brothers and sisters in the faith regardless of how we feel about them. That's the biblical picture of a Christian. And that's one of the things we're committing to when we step into membership at a church. I'm a Green Bay Packers fan. I got one or two cheers for that in the first service. I was expecting none, so that's okay. But I'm saying, I am called to encourage and build up all of you Packers fans, the one or two there in the first service, along with all of you Dallas Cowboys fans as well. Like it doesn't matter if I, if I agree with you on who we should be rooting for. I am called to encourage and build up and love you regardless of whether or not we have sharing opinions or likes or whatever it might be. That doesn't matter because God doesn't say, hey, just encourage those you get along with. He says, no, encourage my church. Encourage brothers and sisters in your church. Ultimately, the reason that we have church membership is a, is a result of a long history of Christendom, but the idea, the command from God to one, submit and follow the leaders, the direction, the, the guidance and direction, the leadership of the pastors at your local church, and the directive to commit to stir up and build up and encourage and love the brothers and sisters at your church, those two things have not changed. Those two things are the same, and the context in which we walk that out is in the context of the local church, embassies that Jesus came to establish when he came to establish his nation, a nation surrounded by the source, of, focused on the source of life that is the only source of life that we then step out in embassies to represent God to the world. The local church was never meant to be seen as a social club organization, never meant to be seen as a place where you just come hang out with friends. It was always meant to be seen as an embassy to advance the mission of God throughout the entire world as representatives of Christ's nation. 
And so here's the thing, what do we do as a result of this? Like what should be our response? What steps do we take as a result of this message? I wanna encourage you all, when it comes to thinking about membership in a local church, just a local church, don't ask if, ask where. Don't ask if, ask where. When you think about committing in membership to a local church, never let it be a question of if we're gonna become members somewhere, if we're gonna commit somewhere, but where? Where would God call us to commit? Where are the pastors that God would call me to place myself under? Where are the men and women that God would call me to use my gifts to build up and encourage other men and women in the faith? You see, in the first century, it was easy. What city do you belong in? Ephesus, great. Ephesian church, done. It's not so simple now because we've got dozens of churches in the same geographical region. And instead, we need to ask then, where would God call you to commit to? Where are those pastors who'd call you to follow? Where are those men and women he'd call you to build up and encourage And a great first step, if you're looking for just something really, really simple, we're gonna be putting out an online survey throughout this whole month. And the purpose of this online survey is to just get an idea of where everybody in LifePoint is at as far as membership here at LifePoint. And if you are wondering, is this the place that God would have me commit in membership to? I just encourage you, take that survey, fill that out, because on that survey, it will just give you very clearly, what does it look like to be a member here? What do we ask you to commit to? What do we ask you to pursue? And us as the pastors have a couple aims in accomplishing, in, in, in for this survey to accomplish. Uh, number one, we want to know who are those men and women that God has tasked us, will hold us accountable to pastoring and spurring on and taking care of who are those people, because we need to know that. But then number two, we need to know how are we doing and where are we at right now so that we know how to take steps forward in that. And so I would encourage you guys, if you're wondering what steps do I take following this sermon, following this message, go fill out that online survey. It takes less than 10 minutes. But I need to encourage you guys, regardless if this is the place that you would be a member at, don't ever let your question be if I'm gonna be a member somewhere. Because that's not what God calls you to. And when God calls you to commit to being under a pastor at a local church, commit to a body of believers, you're gonna seek to encourage and build up. He calls you to take a step closer toward greater blessing in your life. That God calls us to take a step toward greater blessing in our life. Paul says when speaking to Timothy about the word of God, he says that the word of God is profitable for, for, being, for teaching with, reproving, correcting. It's profitable. It's beneficial. It's advantageous. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. As I mentioned earlier, 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. As I finish up here, there's something about the story at the beginning with Sean I didn't tell you guys. So 
Every single time at Canacook, we had a counselor who was kind of put into a situation to where they were being asked to do something that either just wasn't gonna be comfortable or enjoyable or just like, if it was just you by yourself, you just would definitely not do like getting hit over the back with a tiki torch. Like any time a counselor was put in that situation, there was always a phrase that we would use to say, to remind that counselor of what it was that they were doing. There was always a phrase we would bring up. We'd always look at that counselor and say, hey man, I understand your hesitation right now. I understand that what you're looking at, you don't feel like this is gonna be good. This is only gonna lead to pain. This is not something I really wanna be a part of. I understand that. But you would look at that counselor and you'd say, hey man, for the kingdom and for the kids. For the kingdom and for the kids. And what we were saying to that counselor was, hey, I, I acknowledge that you're hesitant to step into this. I acknowledge that you have doubts about how well this might go for you. I acknowledge that you're thinking this is gonna be pretty hard to walk through. I acknowledge that. But what I wanna tell you is that ultimately, it's better. It's better. That when we take a step towards how God calls us to live in this world, we take a step towards what is ultimately better. And that's what I want for all of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, uh, for this time that you've given us together. Lord, I thank you that you are a massive God. That there is not one thing on this earth that you do not control. There is not one thing that ever surprises you or shocks you or throws you off your game. There is not one thing that is out of your power. And you call us to things. You call us to live a certain way. And when you call us to those things, there's hesitations because we wonder about all of the things that could go wrong, all of the things that could be difficult with that, all of the things that could be painful about that, all of the disappointments that come. And you know all of that, God. You know all of that. And you control all of that. And you tell us, I love you so much. Trust me. Go where I'm calling you to go. I run this world. No one else does. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us faith, that you would strengthen us to take steps that are difficult, Lord, that you would lead us ultimately to greater joy God, for our good, but for your glory, ultimately, that you would be shown to the nations through embassies how awesome you are for your namesake and for our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.